Hello and welcome to Dropping at the Movies. I'm Mike. And I'm Jose. And today we've seen The Killer. We've yes. actually both seen it twice. Yes. Um, I've watched it both times on home media. This is primarily a Netflix film. It's had a limited release, which I missed. You saw it at the cinema a couple of days ago. I saw it at the Prince Charles in London. Mm. Yeah. Um, and then we watched it just together, just now at yours. Yes. Um, my initial reaction to the film when I first watched it yesterday was, Meh. you know, and there were lots of things that I liked, but my overall reaction was, God, this is really slight, you know, and a lot of people had, I mean, it's not had um, a, a thoroughly, you know, positive reception. It's some people like it, some people don't, and people are talking about it. Some people are saying it's like it's his best film. This is David Fincher we're talking about. I, I think it's a masterpiece. I mean, um, and I wonder if some of the response to it isn't how people viewed it. Yeah. You know, because um, in The Prince Charles, it felt like you were so immersed in it, mm. right? And also the audience response that some of the things that feel unusual and daring. Yeah, but also maybe a bit boring if you don't recognize it as such, right? Like, yeah, he, you know, he's meant to be bored by his job and he speaks in like this low monotone. Mm. And, you know, the first, what, 20 minutes of the film or half an hour even are all voiceover, right? Well, the voiceover um, continues throughout, but it's heavy in the first third. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, but when you're watching it on the big screen and you're really immersed in that image, little tiny things either shock or surprise or make you laugh mm. right you know whereas i began to watch it again yesterday just for myself I, well before we decided to podcast on it mm. you know i thought i'll just watch it again for myself and you know i, I just found it moved at a different pace it affected me differently the the duller dimension of the film came to the fore, <laughs> yeah, because you were so distracted by other things, kind of. And then, when we agreed to do the podcast, and I thought, I'll just see it again from the beginning, you know, and then kind of, you know, when I was seeing it again on the same TV, but this time really purposefully and yeah. in a focused manner, you know, the, the pleasures of the first time were re-experienced, and actually, and I thought the patterning, the meaning, the color, the editing, you know, the mise-en-scene of it all, seem to me even more brilliant yeah like yeah I, I think i would have liked to have seen it at the cinema and you know we always say what a different experience it is and that's the way films are meant to be seen and so on um so you know i accept that I, had i made the effort i could have found a screening no i'm um, not to, you know but, i'm just mentioning that maybe no no i'm not talk, i'm not saying like you're criticizing me or anything i criticize myself like i could have seen it properly but. yeah but I, what i was referring to was that i i wonder if maybe some of the mixed response to the film yeah yeah is in how you know due to how people initially see it yeah absolutely and and home viewing is very variable although to be fair so is cinema viewing which I mean, cinemas are different from each other and they're not sure. some of them are not great um but obviously you expect a certain standard at the cinema and just the 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 act of going out to the cinema and go, going to see a show is very different to plonking it on at home. Um, the, the way I've watched it twice has been fairly different, though. You know, here it's been more casual. I've been sat with you. We you know, mm. pause it occasionally to go and get a bit of food because you mm. were making dinner for me, which was nice. Um, whereas at home yesterday, you know, it was very dark because we're getting into the middle of winter and it gets mm. dark quickly anyway. And... Um, you know, I've got a huge TV that I'm not sat very far from. So in some respects, it's not a million miles from mm. a kind of cinema s scale, mm. uh, you know, just just much closer. Um, and, you know, I, I really kind of beautiful image and I wasn't distracted by the things. I wasn't sitting down and playing my phone. Though I could, you know, I could have been, had I been bored by the film, I could easily have. Mm. You know. So I wasn't bored by it. And I think it moves very swiftly. Um, but I did also find... Uh, that there were things that kind of started to lag for me, which which did less so just now, because one of the things about watching a film a second time is that you know ultimately where everything's going. And so, for instance, in the kind of latter part of this film where he's tracking the billionaire um, and he's, you know, copying the, the thing and you know, he's working out what he needs to do to get to him, you go through an awful lot of process watching that. Now, the second time I watch it, just now, it feels quite swift. Mm. The first time, I thought, where is this going and how long is it going to take? And Because you don't know if he's going to run into trouble. You don't know, you know, 
you don't know what's going to happen, mm. and and you just because the space of possibility is sort of so large, and then what ultimately happens is nothing out of the ordinary. It just goes well. I felt quite disappointed, you know. Mm. Do you see what I mean, right? It's very different the second time to the first time in that respect. Um, I should just quickly say before we go on, actually, what it's about. Sure. It's based on uh, a French graphic novel or series of French graphic novels that began some twenty-five years ago, um, and I think continues to this day. Um, Michael Fassbender plays an unnamed killer. He is the killer of the title, uh, and at the start of the film, we follow him um, waiting to uh, shoot someone with a sniper rifle across um, uh, a square in Paris. Mm-hmm. Uh, some you know, penthouse. Uh, we don't know who this guy is, who's the target, and we're tracking him, we're waiting for him, and we hear this this monologue, this voiceover that uh, Fassbender, Fassbender's character, the killer, has going on in his head about, you know, he repeats these mantras to himself, you know, don't trust anyone, only fight the battle you're paid to, things like this, and he repeats them throughout mm-hmm. the film. Um, when it ultimately comes to the time to uh, take out the target, he botches the hit. Someone, uh, uh, a prostitute that the guy's with, accidentally moves in the way. He shoots her, and all of a sudden we're in a different space. He's he's botched the first kill of his life. He's got to get gone. Um, the people who he works for uh, take revenge on him, essentially. They go after him. He's not at home, but his girlfriend is. And now that she's been attacked, he goes after his bosses and the people involved in uh, taking revenge on him. So what starts off as a, a hitman movie becomes a revenge movie. Mm. Um, but it is kind of, when I say it's quite slight, it's kind of, I, I think the reason that I, that I think that, and it's not necessarily a criticism, it's just, it's what the film is. It's you're constantly with the killer. Everything's in the moment. Even the 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 voiceover you know, we're so because there's such a noirish thing going on in this film. I mean, it's a ur noir. It's as noir as noir can get. Yeah, and one of the things about about noir, one of the one of the tropes and the things that's parodied about noir is the voiceover. Mm. And you know, like in Sunset Boulevard, the kind of the twist on the voiceover was that it's done by a dead person and things like this. But it's you know the story's being told by whoever you know the detective, whatever. Mm. Here, the voiceover. Is in the moment. It's kind of it's subtle, right? But it's it's happening right now. Instead of it being the story being told to you from later, you're in Fassbender's head the whole time. The voiceover gets interrupted, for instance, when someone ambushes him or a door opens. The voiceover stops. So instead of it being a narration, it's his thought process. Mm. That's why these mantras work as mantras, right? Because it's it's how it's it's interestingly revealing of character because. Instead of it being, you know, his uh, philosophy on life that you should do these things, you should behave in this way, it's it comes across as him having to tell himself how to act. He has to remind himself all the time: don't trust anyone, only do the job you're paid for, don't have empathy, that sort of thing. Mm. You know, it's like, and so when you're saying you know, this thing about uh, Fassbender's character is is bored of his job, um, there's you kind of, I think it kind of feeds into that, right? It's like he's, it's it's a it's it's an active process of keeping himself involved in his job mm. to remind himself of how to behave. And even then, it's unreliable, which is interesting, a point. So he says, don't have empathy. But when the secretary begs to um, not have her body hidden, she knows she's going to die. But when she begs, please let my body be found. I don't want my family to, to, to not know where I am. Even though he says to himself, you hear it again in voiceover, don't have empathy. He does have empathy. He leaves her on the ground. He steps over her. He leaves her. Her body will be found, mm. right? So it's 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 it, that's an interesting little twist. And the film does an incredibly effective job of putting you in his head. You know, the thing right at the start. Sorry, I know I'm banging on. Um, right at the start when he's um, when he's when he's waiting and waiting and waiting for the opportunity to to um, perform this hit. Um, he's listening to the Smiths all the time. He's listening to the Smiths throughout the film. Mm. Um, you know, it's the music of the sort of the 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 mopey Gen Xer who's sick of it all. Mm. Um, but when you go into a point of view shot through the scope, the music gets louder. It's clear you're in his head, listening to that music with him. And when you're outside of the scope, watching him, it's muffled because you're seeing it at the distance. You know, the sound work is beautiful throughout. Yeah, yeah. your turn <laughs> and very expressive. Well, um, so I saw the Prince Charles, and I immediately thought it's kind of like a matter, you know, it's a masterpiece. I I remember talking about it with my sister and I was saying it's kind of like a metaphor 
for contemporary neoliberalism, right? You know, that it's all a gig economy, uh, it's globalization, right? So, you know, throughout the film, we see him go everywhere. It's kind of full of... So so his understanding is that of um, a sitcom world, right? All of the characters, all of the identities that he takes on, mm. you know, they're from the Ock couple or all in the family or... I recognised a few. Sam Malone is from Cheers. George Jefferson is the Jeffersons. Yes. And these are all his aliases. Exactly. So it's all... They're all sitcoms, right? Mm. Uh, Lou Grant from the Mary Tyler Moore show. Archie yeah. Bunker. Uh, uh, Richie Cunningham from Happy Days, <laughs> yeah. right? Like, you know, the, so all those references evoke like a kind of a sitcom world, which is the opposite of this bleak, quiet, boring, mm. yeah, kind of lonely, yeah, uh, uh, thing that we're seeing him do, right? And uh, on the other hand, we also see that kind of chain, global chains that also create a convenient distance, right? So Amazon, Hertz Rent-A-Car, yeah, there's... WeWork right at the start, which WeWork. is the, the, the shared office space thing that even at the time was already kind of defunct. That's we right. we see that. And he refers to Airbnb, but they're, they're not reliable because they now have nanny cams, right? right? Yeah. So, you know, so I think it's very much a kind of a commentary on our world and alienation and you know the 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 type of 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 capitalism that we live in, and it begins actually with this mantra that he says, you know, uh, there's no luck, there's no fate, there's no justice, there, there's no God, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So kind of he justifies his actions because basically acknowledging this kind of gives him freedom. If there is no God, yeah, then actually he can do what he wants, right? And mm -hmm. yeah, he chooses to go to the extreme of capitalism, which is capitalism is murder. It's mm. the exploitation, you know, don't let yourself be one of the many. You have to be one of the few, you know, because otherwise you're just exploited and bled. And the film is really explicit about all of that, isn't it? Mm. And, yeah. and one of the one of the mantras he repeats to himself is about only fighting the battle that you're paid to fight. That's right. Like the money, ultimately. Yeah, so don't be idealistic. Don't fight for Palestine or whatever your cause is <laughs> at the moment, right? Like, kind of... You know, just fight for what for what gives you profit, right? I mean, it is a kind of a Trumpism, corporate kind of mindset, you know, not even taken to an extreme, actually. But here's the thing. Here's what makes the character interesting, is this is what I'm saying about him repeating these mantras to himself to make himself think this way, remind himself to think this way, is because it doesn't actually come naturally to him to do that. No. I think this is what's interesting. He cares about people more than he lets on. Which is why he will, for instance, let the woman have a body be found once she dies, right? He's not going to not kill her, but he's going to grant her this wish. He, yeah, and ultimately what he wants is to be on an idyllic beach with his girlfriend, living the life that, you know, he, they were, they're, they're, he's earned or whatever, believes he could have. The film gives you little information about the relationship with that woman in the Dominican Republic, right? So, you know, it's clear she loves him. It's also clear that she's a bit afraid of him, I think. Yeah, so, yeah. you know, she says, like, I haven't said anything. Yeah, I didn't mention your word. Like, you know, and then she romanticized it by saying, you know, I was so afraid of not seeing you again that it kind of helped her live. She also says, you'd be proud of me. Yes. For not having said anything. Yeah, so, so there's an implication that she knows, but how much she knows... Yeah, is not clear about his job. Uh, the brother clearly doesn't know. He says, I've asked you no questions. But anyway, my point is that even though we are shown very little about his feelings for her, and her feelings for him are at best mixed, love is, you know, what skewers this equation. Yeah, love is what kind of gets him involved, <laughs> yeah, mm. uh, goes for security. It's what, you know, part of the reason why he just doesn't disappear with his millions, right, is because of her, right, and wanting security with her. So I, in spite of this um, worldview that he seems to espouse, and he repeats over and over and over and over again, and actually, I think it is the worldview of contemporary capitalism, even to the point, you know, uh, when he confronts the billionaire 
you know, and the billionaires describing, yeah, the hit and so on. He's he's using all this language like collateral damage, right? You never you're never direct about that. Yeah. You never say it's a hit, <laughs> right? Yeah. You say I wanted a problem solved, and they wanted insurance. And yeah, they offered they, to clean up. To clean up, you know, no blowback. I, yeah. you know, it's not kill the fucker, right? <laughs> yeah. So you know, so I thought I thought the film is brilliant about how you know in this very quiet really beautiful kind of way uh it actually deals with all of those issues and it dramatizes them and it problematizes them because you know on the one hand it's clear that the hero who's not a hero who's a killer mm. yeah who's therefore a bad person uh and you know who lives in this world that is ruthless and exploitative you know, which people are like anonymous. I mean, he says so at the beginning, you know, kind of like, you know, so many people die, so many people are born every day. You know, is anyone really going to miss the few that I mm. you know, take off, right? Mm -hmm. So that is kind of like the, the worldview that the film uh, dramatizes and critiques. Yeah, kind of, you know, so on the one hand, it's saying this is the world. On the other hand, I think it's saying it's not, all there is to the world. There's also love and feeling. And actually, I think the Smiths is like the best counterpoint to that, right? Because on the one hand, they're all songs of loneliness and aching and alienation. Yeah? Mm -hmm. You know, but they're all about wanting love and wanting to be seen and, yeah, kind yeah. of, you know. Uh, uh, so, so, so I thought it was beautiful. And then, so, you know, I had this discussion with my sister, you know, and then I, 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 I arrived home and then I saw this quote from Guillermo del Toro that seemed to, you know, kind of say it even even better than I thought it, which is, you know, the, the killer is a beautiful Bronson movie, if penned by Sartre and filmed by Melville with the briskness of a seagull. I simply love, love, love when Fincher swings with a mean genre beat, nimble and clockwork precise and fun. The breeziest film I've seen in a long time. It's great when you can see a film and a movie at the same time. And I thought kind of, you know, in a very few sentences, he incorporated kind of all that I like about the film. Yeah, that, you know, so on the one hand, it's a genre movie. It's it's kind of akin to like, you know, one of those Bronson Death Wish films about a lone you know, kind mm -hmm. of revenge uh, person. But, you know, penned by Sartre in the sense of, you know, asking questions of, well, what is life? What is existence? you know, who am I, yeah, kind of what is my responsibility to myself and to the world, like the film kind of, you know, brings all of that really kind of to the fore. Um, and, you know, I think it's incredibly precise, mm. you know, the mise-en-scene. I mean, you know, a friend was mentioning how many shots there were in the beginning that you don't notice, right? Like, Oh, I noticed. This occurred to me. I was really mm. glad that she said that. She's on Facebook. Mm. Um, and I, I didn't respond to it, but but I thought, yeah, she's absolutely right because there are so many setups, you know, just to take you through this period of waiting of like being in the in that attic, well, not attic, but uh, kind of disused office, um, looking across. Um, I also saw something on Twitter that showed how um, the the shots of the building across the way, which he's mm. targeting, are you know, it's not just a simple shot; it's composed of different plates that have been put together, assembled in, and Fincher is you know kind of um is, is so fond of using uh, computer generated imagery and and uh, visual effects to combine these sorts of things in ways that you you know he's, he's not putting a dinosaur in his film mm. he's just combining different shots of a building into a single thing but it he's doing it in a way that he couldn't otherwise do you know mm. um and i thought yeah it's, and this is why we just had a look at uh the video that he shot for justin timberlake from 10 years ago for suit and tie as well because mm. i was talking about the editing in that the editing is so precise um, and and you have the same thing here of of every every shot has been meaningfully chosen, meaningfully composed. I was even noticing just as we were watching the film just now um, when he's with uh, the the secretary in in the van, he's taking her to the house where she's going to give him all this information. Um, the camera is sat on the driveway waiting for the van to pull up, and the van pulls up, and where it stops, you see them through the windows. She's on the left. He's on the right, 
and the the separator between the front and back half of the window is right between them. It's mm. not an accident, right? Mm, like they Chris. probably did that shot ten times before they got it exactly right because he wants it to be precise. And Fincher has this reputation that the woman who played um, the, the the prostitute at the start uh, did some Instagram post where she was talking about like everything that you've heard about David Fincher is true. And I got sick and tired of doing twenty takes, but it was amazing to work with him and so on. You know, like he has this mm. reputation. And that's why I also thought that Michael Fassbender was, was good casting. I mean, again, this is one of these things where people were like, it's the perfect pairing, you know, Michael Fassbender's one of the great actors at the moment, David Fincher's one of the great directors, I can't wait to see them work together. And what occurred to me in watching them and just thinking about their kind of collaboration was, I don't think I've ever seen Michael Fassbender give a performance that I could think of as loose. Like, he mm. couldn't play Ace Ventura, mm. you know? He's controlled mm. and precise. And the characters that he plays, or at least the way he plays them, are controlled and precise and think about how they're coming across and what they're saying and how they're moving and so on. And he's incredibly good at that. There was that, that great scene um, in Inglorious Bastards where he's playing... Uh, he's British, but he's playing German um, and trying to... Uh, you know, they're meeting this spy... And it's the whole thing about not getting discovered as being German. And that's all about this precision of performance. And the one thing that gives him away is the one thing that he hasn't considered, the gesture that, you know, mm. the German notices and so on. Um, it's like, it's all about that, right? It's all about those details. And mm. this film is full of that. It's why their collaboration, I think, makes so much sense. And mm. it comes through in every moment of this. It's all about precision, about detail, about about what the character is considering and what he's deciding to to, to bother with and not bother with. I mean, I keep coming back to this thing about not having empathy, but deciding to in that moment. But it's, it's a decision to do that. You know, he makes this decision to have empathy. And it's, again, even though I, I suppose it's um, it's 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 like a loose end, right? You know, the character is like, the whole thing about these mantras is if you follow these mantras, you will succeed and mm. never be caught and so on. Um, he's leaving a loose end by leaving this body, but it's a decision to do so. It's mm. not a wild, it's not a, like a, a whim. He thinks about it. He yes. does it. So he does say don't improvise. So he is improvising there, really. Yeah. Um, there are two things that I just, you know, want to want to mention now. The first is to pick up from where you said about the editing, because, you know, <clears throat> the film is so precisely edited, but it is edited in a different way than we think about film editing, right? Like, you know, so we are living in a digital world and editing used to be a shot in time. Yeah, like the time of the shot is, you know, where you're allowed to edit. And of course you can speed it up or you can make it longer or, yeah. Um, but actually here, you're also composing within the shot. So, you know, the composite shots that you mentioned of bringing different buildings into one, but also obviously just things like having text in it, yeah, or mm. yeah, or so on. It's a kind of, um, it, it, it's, a, it's an interesting thing to talk about in terms of, you know, how the film brings time and space together, that the editing, when we think of editing now, we're not just thinking sequentially, but yeah, or or, but we're also thinking of different elements within the same shot that, you know, and the shot can then be edited subsequently in a different way. I haven't thought about that very much, you know, but I just think it's one of the interesting things that is done so well in this film. Mm -hmm. So, you know, because when friends have been talking about, you know, how the editing at the beginning is so masterful, it's like, you know, Hitchcock or something, I say, well, you know, but editing now includes compositing yeah mm -hmm. uh so so that's one thing i want to mention the other thing is you know the the design right because again i was i was noticing this time how there's a color scheme for the film um and it's kind of you know amber and and green and there's a bit of red and blue right and it's a color scheme that's kind of maintained throughout the film, but the changes in each of the six chapters, right? So that when you move from Paris to the Dominican Republic, obviously, you know, the greens, there's a lot more green, the amber becomes a kind of a yellow, mm -hmm. yeah, the blue becomes beaches or yeah kind of mm. yeah so the cyan of the stairs becomes the beaches and you know that sequence so you know the tones are shifted right 
but the colors remain the same or the use of the colors remain the same. So, for example, in that scene in kind of New Orleans where you were talking about with the secretary, mm. all of a sudden the green becomes kind of olive green and it's basically like his suit and the bin that he's carrying, right? Mm. You know, it's still a green. It's just mm. a different shade. So, and, and I think that's one of the films, one of the ways that the film constructs this world is through color, right? So, you know, these are very different spaces that we go to, yeah? Uh, and you could argue that each has different colors, but the unity of the whole dark kind of world is maintained yeah, by just having kind of different shades of those kind of original colors, right? Mm. So, for example, you know, in um, in the Paris sequence, the only red that you see, yeah, for most of the film is the crosshairs, yeah? Mm. You know, and then, of course, kind of that because, yeah, the, the, you know, there's more red in subsequent uh, sequences. And, of course, things burst in flames and so on. There's blood. And there's blood, yeah. Um, but it's interesting, you know, that so so you have like different shades and also I suppose, you know, that particular colors predominate, yeah, mm. more or less in, uh, in the film. But it's it's again, very controlled, yeah, very rigorous, very thought through, mm. yeah, kind of every element uh, of that design. And it's, and it's a design that I think is also beautifully shot by uh, Eric Messerschmitt, um, you know, the 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 image which is so controlled, right? Like those incredible two-dimensional uh, expressionist uh, shadows where like, you know, kind of a person is just shown almost as an outline, right? That kind of, you know, mm -hmm. there's a sequence of Michael Fassbender kind of, I think it's when he kills the guy in Miami or when he goes to kill the guy in Miami. You see him outside the, waiting outside the van. Into That's the right, yeah. yeah, where, uh, you know, it's almost, he becomes dehumanized and yeah, it just becomes a shadow. It's kind of it's it's beautifully filmed. So, uh, so the film has both like a, a kind of a crispness, a clarity, yeah. Which um, you really associate with Fincher's look. Yeah, it, it has that look. It does. Yeah, uh, very much so. Um, and then, of course, I think the last thing I want to mention is the, like the ethics of it, right? Because, you know, so in this critique of, you know, corporate global world you know capitalist world we live in the um billionaire is allowed to go scot-free yes i was wondering if you'd get actuarial about this because um and, and, and i mean really in terms of sexual and racial representation because remember when we talked about saw 10 just recently yes. and you were saying you know, how all these people of color get killed off and the the white Aryan goddess, although she's trapped in the room and we assume is going to be left to die, though these characters can always come back. At the end of the film, she's left alive. She's the yeah. last victim, and she's she's living when we leave her. And here, um, the two targets in the film who are white men both live. The first is the botched attack, so he's supposed to die, but he doesn't. Uh, and the second is allowed to live at the end. Everyone else who's um, hurt or murdered is a woman or a man of colour or a woman of colour. Yes. Um, I wondered if you would... Yeah, you know, but it, there's definitely a purpose, I think. Or at least... Well, the thing I, about leaving the billionaire alive at the end, the film does give you a degree of context for it when Fassbender is looking him up on the plane and the voiceover, his, his internal monologue, is saying it's dangerous with this guy because the police's efforts will be doubled I get in it. response to no. um, the money roll. But I'm not sure that's enough of a reason to leave the guy alive. Well, it's just interesting that the two billionaires live, yeah. right? And one, he goes out to kill. I mean, you know, he could have killed him uh, uh, and made it anonymous, right? Yeah, like, no he's there. You know, um, but but he Pop, chose. We do see the camera. He, the camera sees him, and he sees the camera see mm. him. So maybe that's a reason he does. Maybe, but you know, my feeling is that the reason why he doesn't kill him is because it was nothing personal. The guy didn't know who he was, or yeah, the language that's used again. You know, that language of collateral damage, right? Like, mm. you know, he didn't even know who he was, right? 
Yeah, well, I did actually read um, a short... Uh, I think someone asked Fincher about this because people have noticed the billionaire lives at the end of all of this. And I think I, th- I think it's less that people object to the billionaire being left alive, but it's the revenge. Like, the, the revenge is not ultimately carried out. Everyone doesn't die in this. Um, and people say, why is that? And one thing that Fincher said um, is a reason to leave this billionaire alive is he doesn't know where he lives. Even the taxi driver, who's done nothing, knows where he lives because he hung out outside his house for mm. an hour while they while the two guys he gave a lift to went off and beat up his girlfriend. You know, so that's a reason and he's seen his face and stuff. So I mean I'm not sure I completely buy that as a reason. Uh, but it is a reason that uh, outside the film Fincher gave in response to a question. Well I think it's interesting in the you know and it it works through with the themes of the film, you know, that we live, you know, in this kind of corporate, global, exploitative world without God. <laughs> if there was any justice, yeah, that guy would be in jail. But we live in a world <laughs> that there is no justice, right? And also, I think the intention is important. The guy, you know, doesn't even know who he is, right? Like, it was explained to him as insurance. Like, who wouldn't want to buy insurance? Like, yeah, it is like, it's it's like in The Godfather. It's nothing personal. Mm. Yeah, it's just And business. I do think the story is told to the killer character twice in different ways. I think the first time he hears that, I don't remember specifically, but when he's being told by um, his boss, the, um, the lawyer, I think he tells him something along the lines of the client wanted this sorted out and insisted that we get you and that sort of thing. So he's told from him, mm. the client, wanted this and he's told by the client when he finally meets him the lawyer offered this mm. two different yeah that's not the same thing right mm. and they're both <laughs> saying it wasn't me mm. yeah and uh, this thing about you know empathy what do you make of the Tilda Swinton sequence well this is where I started to really dislike the film in the moment I mean well actually that's not quite true I think I was sort of I was I was disliking things about it up until that point but one of the things that the film is doing, obviously, is playing with tropes of noir. And there are points at which, rather than, I think, working with those tropes and cliches in interesting ways, it just embodies them. And that's kind of what I felt all through dinner with Tilda Swinton. The idea of it, I can see. It, it, so it's this thing about... So let, let's talk about that sitcom thing again, just quickly, because... Um, the thing I think is interesting about the sitcom thing, you were talking about how it's it's like the sitcom is the wacky world that he's not living in. But well, he... it's an understanding of the world. It's a right. dominant of the world. It's like, it's our history of growing up of what we thought the world to be, which was like right. nice and funny jokes. and yeah. But also it's a limited understanding. It's always the same. There's a reality and repetition. And So I kind of saw the sitcom names thing as, as a killer character... And he's got a sense of humour. You can see it in his face. I mean, he laughs at Tilda Swinton's joke, for instance. You know, he's got a sense of humour, and he's he's doing it for himself, I think. But I saw it as in kind of playing with a, a sort of normality. Like sitcoms are obviously with laugh tracks, and they're not real life, and they're three walls and everything. But they kind of represent a normality, and they represent a kind of you know all these characters are like what well, I don't know all the characters that he that he he names himself after, but. They have this kind of you know, patriarchs of families, and the, and it's like the two point four kid family, the guys next door, and then every, after every episode of a sitcom, you you reset to normal and you go again the next week. Nothing really mm. changes, and and then he gets to so like even though his 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 life in one sense is this boring routine of go to work, kill a person, <laughs> it's also a very unusual life in which he's having to you know kind of uh, evade the law and all this sort of thing. And whereas, you know, looking at a sitcom and pretending to, you know, adopting the name of a sitcom character is like playing at normality that you can't otherwise get. And then he goes to track down the Tilda Swinton character. And when he's on the train there, he's like, what the fuck are you doing living in a commuter town outside New York? Like, We don't live like this. He can't get it. can't get his head around the idea that someone doing his job might have found a normal life. So that's why he goes to dinner and because conf- he, he he has the opportunity to kill her, he could shoot her out the car when he sees her outside a house. He could shoot her in the car when he pulls. Up I'm next not to sure her about lights. that because you hear a police a police siren on the soundtrack at that moment. I do okay, but he could uh, when he pulls up next to at the lights, 
he's got his gun out. He, he could do it there and then, but he's too curious to see. And she and she's basically saying, she says him, that to him. Yeah. You know, you you had to see for yourself. Although I think her read on the situation is not quite the same as mine, because my read on the situation is he had to find out who this person was, like how she could live the way she's living, because he can't. All of a sudden, the thing that he's like fantasized about for himself, she all of a sudden, oh, she's actually doing it. I don't, I don't agree with that because, you know, so she is living in a suburban community, and I see that he sees it as an odd choice, but not necessarily a better choice than his. After all, she is having, you know, she is a middle-aged woman having dinner alone, you know, uh, and not even taking comfort in the things that she loves. So no hug and dust ice cream, mm. you know, no alcohol until he arrives, you know, in which she then, you know, thinks of other things. So I think, for me, the role of that is he has to take her out. There's no question. She also knows where he lives, right? So she's, oh, yeah, that was she's, never a question. She's got to go, right? But it's a way of kind of mirroring the future that he might expect, yeah? And she tells him again, this is what's going to happen to you when when this moment arrives for you, mm. right? Like, yeah? So it is that, you know, I think the, the, the role or the purpose of that chapter is in changing the narrative, yeah? So, you know, so from going to we're one of the few to one, I'm one of the many is, you know, he kind of, uh, transfers the money, uh, kills her, and goes back to his girlfriend and starts a different kind of life, is what I'm reading the ending as. Well, yeah, I think I'm I'm saying that too, I think. I'm not sure quite where the difference between this is. What I'm saying is that when he sees that she lives like this in this place and, and going out to dinner and so on, I think the kind of shock for him and the reason that he has to see her for himself is that it did not occur to him that it was a possibility for him, someone doing what he does, to experience normality mm. the way she is. Mm. See what I mean? Mm. So he has to... F- That's why he can't just shoot her in the car and have done with it. I've got to see who this woman is and find out why, she, what the difference is between me and her, you know? Yeah. That's the way I read it. I think, the, I think it's filmed really well because I thought there was also a Hitchcockian MacGuffin element to that whole sequence in the restaurant, hmm. uh, which was the thought of poison, which is mentioned, mm-hmm. yeah, in there. So you know when when she says, "Bring my own bottle," right? Uh, you you think there's something in that bottle, either for <laughs> him or for her, yeah. Um, mm. You know, and then of course there's this thing of like tasting and daring to taste, and I dare you to eat this or you must drink this or, yeah. yeah. So, so I think it's kind of playing with this. Oh, is there poison? Yeah. And of course nothing happens out of it. Yeah. But it introduces the idea that it might, and it kind of creates all this wonderful tension to, well, to people who are. It's not the only time the film does something like that. It does an awful lot of, and this is what I was saying about, about anticipating during that sequence at the gym, Mm. you know, like what could, what could go wrong here? How is it going to develop? And then nothing ultimately does. It does this a lot, right? So, at the gym, you know, uh, he's when he's copying the thing, you think there's a possibility at any point someone can just walk in on him. He hears someone flush the loo mm. as he leaves. He's like, oh my God, what's I seen? But nothing. The thing with the, you know, the idea that those drinks um, and that food might be poisoned, again, nothing comes of it. Right at the start, when he's um, in the WeWork office um, and his monologue gets interrupted for the first time in his head, he's going through his mantras and then he hears someone approach the door. You think, oh shit, what's going to happen? Guy just drops mail, yeah. leaves, doesn't see him. So the film is absolutely full of things where something could go wrong. He could be noticed. Someone could have an inkling. He might have to change his plans, but nothing. The only the only thing that, like, <laughs> obviously there's the botched hit in which then everything has to change at that point. But in terms of, um, you know, the, the anticipation of something going wrong that I can just about see coming, some interruption, there's nothing like that. Mm. The film is constantly... Alerting even the thing on the plane. I forgot about this altogether. Yes, the plane at the start. He sees the guy with the socks. He notices his socks. Goes, who the fuck is this guy? I've seen him again. He's oh, I'm getting connecting flight. He's getting the same connecting flight. I'm going to switch my flight. I'm going to stay overnight. And then he sits up all night with a gun, you know, in Mm. a hotel room that he's been given. 
and nothing comes this. This guy is nobody. He's just a commuter. But the paranoia and the the anticipation he keeps on saying to himself, anticipate, don't improvise. Well, he's kind of doing both in this sense because he's improvising based on an anticipation. But the anticipation comes to nothing. Yeah, this guy was no one. Let me read you something because um, it's it's a version of what my sister and I discussed after the film. But I think my friend uh, Peter Mantella puts it uh, puts it very well. He says of the film, I think it's a wonderful allegory for neoliberal capitalism the tyranny and boredom of work and the manufacturing of corpses as a form of commodity fetishism uh, and also alienation and the problems of outsourcing. Uh Yeah, kind of. (laughs) You really can see the film as... Yeah, well, I think it functions as a satire in a way. I think the film has a sense of humour and in some respects it is comedic. It definitely has jokes. it, it has moments where the audience laughs for sure. Yeah, I mean, there's the thing where he's fighting the the brute in Florida, and he and he reaches into a drawer he can't see, and he's hoping for a knife, and he gets yeah. that grater. It's a big laugh. It's a big laugh. Yeah. Um, so, but it it kind of rather than it's definitely a commentary on on capitalism, as you say. But I see it also as a satire specifically because I think the the, the set it reminded me of Archer with the uh, the spy uh, animated sitcom. Where the thing about that was, it was it's a workplace comedy. It's just that the workplace is a spy agency, so it's kind of heightened and weird in that way. And this is like that. It's a guy who is bored with his job, trying to get through his life, imagining different things for himself, not imagining he could reach them. But instead of it being he works in an office, he murders people for a living. There's an element of that. There's an element of that, but I don't want to. It's not a comedy, though. I'm not saying it's that. It's not a comedy. Uh, I think. You know, it's about as bleak a picture of the world, you know, as you can get, really. Uh, and I think also it's, you know, it's about as dark an element, a, a, an example of noir as I've seen. I mean, you know, um, you rarely get kind of boredom, yeah, as part of the job description of a killer in a noir film. Mm-hmm. Yeah, kind of, it's almost like, a, you know, there's constant excitement. And this, particularly in the opening sequences, you know, his um, sleep deprivation, his tiredness, his repetitions and yoga. And, you know, like, I, you, the film really evokes that sense of, of just boredom, mm-hmm. right, and, and alienation. Um, so I kind of... I mean, he gets it's a happy funny. ending, though. He huh? gets a happy ending. That's does, not very noir. He does get... He does get... It's hard to read that ending. Yeah, because... He also gets to kind of call himself in that voiceover at the end, one of the many. One of the last, many. But he's still been able to retire to a beautiful beach with his beautiful girlfriend with, with $8 million. $8 million, dollars, yeah. So how, much of, how, many, you know, how many of the many are like that? Yeah. Um, yeah. It, it's 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 so interesting because yeah you're right I mean it is as bleak a noir as I've seen in its view of the world you know in um in the amorality of the film you know in its explicit kind of structuring of this world of exploitation with no luck no destiny no fate no god right uh, and yet kind of the last shot in the film is the sunniest one. Yeah, yeah. It's the beach and the sunlight and the girlfriend and the drinks all beautifully put with that zest of lemon on, in the on the coffee, you know. Um, yeah, all those colours that you mentioned are there, but they're rich and bright for the first yeah, time. Yeah, you know? kind of. Yeah, so there's a kind of they pop a hopefulness to that, right? Uh, and yet the you know that's all there because he's acted as one of the few, <laughs> you know, and now he's claiming to be one of the many, though he always claims he's an ordinary person. Yeah. Mm. Um, so, and for him, the only way that an ordinary person can climb out, yeah, or refuse to be exploited is to do the unthinkable, yeah, or what this society, what the sitcom mindset doesn't allow you to think. He also kind of, well, I want to, I think I remember this accurately from the end is, um, I think he also essentially gives up those mantras. I mean, one of the things about those mantras is they come across as kind of um, uh, 
like live, laugh, love at times. You know, occasionally they come a little bit sort of new agey and, um, and uh, I don't know what the word is, but like not to be taken entirely seriously. Oh, superficial. Um, right. Um, but he is following them. He's repeating them to himself. It's, it's, it's how he kind of you know, reminds himself to, to how he, I don't know, how he succeeds at his job. Hmm. Um, but right at the end, when he's, he's you know, voiceovering, uh, and you see him taking that cup of tea and sitting down. Um, he talks about, he, he goes through some mantras again. I can't remember if they're really the same ones, but they're similar. And he, then he says, you know, if you can believe that, you're one of the few and not like me anymore. I'm one of the many, essentially. He seems to throw away that kind of, that, that yeah, mode um, of thinking. Well, I think the the effect of the scene is to throw it away. But whether the film or the audience quite believes it or can find security in that image and action is a different thing altogether. Mm, yeah. yeah. I mean, I think definitely, you know, the film is kind of, is a play on genre throughout. And in a way that is its kind of most daring transgression. Yeah. That it kind of, it has the effect of a happy ending, uh, you know, which means that, it's a happy ending that would never have been allowed in classic Hollywood cinema, right? You know, <laughs> because, because of the way he's acted. Well, you've just killed he should 10 be people, right? Yeah. You know, and actually, and I think that's still true of cinema in general, right? That, mm. you know, kind of, it always has to, it always brings in a morality to those actions. You know, whereas this is like completely amoral. I mean, he's gotten the money, yeah, out of all the killing. He's killed all the people. Yeah, he's killed innocent people, right? Like the cab driver and mm -hmm. so on, right? Like that has no bearing. Innocent, whether you're innocent or not, has no bearing on it. Which is where the secretary comes in. I'm a good person. I'm a good. Who cares? Yeah. Right? This is not a world in which being good buys you any brownie points, right? Mm -hmm. And yet, you know, at the end, he has a happy ending. Yeah. So he's the worst. The worst. Well, he's as bad as a person can be, and nonetheless, he ends up on the beach with his girlfriend and a drink. <laughs> yeah. So, so I think all of these things are what makes this film truly great. And actually, kind of watching it again for the second and a half time today, you know, kind of made me even think I want to see it even, even yet again, really. You know, I think it's a film that will reward, you know, for the viewings. I do want to talk a little bit about the things that, that I wasn't enjoying, because I, I, I started to mention them when we talked about Tilda Swinton, and then I went into why it was interesting. It is interesting. But... um. I, I do hate kind of how she talks. <laughs> do you know what I mean? And this is where I was saying, like, where the film plays with tropes and the way ways that people talk. What's that condiment that you British people like or Marmite? don't like? Marmite. She's a very marmite actress. <laughs> well, I mean, it's not... I don't mean like her voice or anything. And I've liked Tilda Swinton in all sorts of things. I think she plays the character very well here. Mm. I don't like the way the character is, is conceived of. So, like I say, I think... This is one of the moments in which um, the film is embodying a cliche rather than you know, working with it in an interesting way because it's the way that she, she she's confronted with her death now is imminent. Mm. All of a sudden, the guy sat in front of her. There's no escape for her. Um, she starts monologuing, you know, and she tells the joke about the bear and the joke is also meant to mean something because it, it's talking about, like his behavior, he acts in a certain way and maybe the real motivations for the way he's acting are not what he thinks. And so, That's right. So, like, it's a meaningful joke yeah, to maybe tell. Maybe he just likes killing. Right. It's a meaningful joke to tell and it matters. And, but she's also, you know, monologuing with a bear joke that seems irrelevant. It's like, it, there's cliche in this, right? And I really didn't like it. No, she, I thought She offers was... him the drink. She says, oh, you won't even imbibe. Not yeah. drink, imbibe. I hate that. I hate no, the way I, she talks. Well, I like, I liked all of that. I thought the joke was funny. I thought the situation was kind of electric, you know, so it functioned at several levels. You know, it was funny. Uh, it was the loose end in the narrative. Uh, also, it's a foretaste of things to come. Yeah. Uh, also, it proves many of his mantras. You can't trust anybody, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, a lot of what she's doing is actually, you know, trying to save her... Or, pretending that she's acknowledging her fate, but trying to find ways out of saving herself mm -hmm. like the trained killer she is. You know, and the film reveals that very, very well. So, so... Not saying it's not purposeful. I'm not saying it doesn't make sense. Any of that. 
I just also hate the way it comes across in, mm. to a degree. I didn't like the fight with um, the brute in Florida. Um, I think the setup to it is interesting. You know, him watching, finding out, you know, getting a sense of who this guy is and what he's going to have to do and so on, feeding the dog, uh, the uh, you know, to, to make him go to sleep. But the fight itself, I found kind of perfunctory. Oh, you know, like like if there's a glass bottle, it's getting smashed over someone's head. If there's a glass table, someone's getting thrown into it. Everything, and to a point where again, that almost seemed like it was it was playing with conventions of fights. You know, these things happen in fights. And it's like it goes through every single one of them. It, well, but no, I found it quite boring. Well, to me, it was really it was great. You know, I thought it was exciting to watch. It was surprising when the guy with the wooden thing went right up through him. And also the fact that um, Fassbender is frail. You know, that there is a there is a kind of a risk that he might... Well, you don't know how he's going to come out. So, the, you know, the assumption normally in some other kind of action film is, of course, the hero is going to win. Here, you kind of know he's going to win because there's still more time in the film. <laughs> yeah. But actually, kind of, you know, there's also a very real sense that you don't know that he's going to come out of it, but you don't know how he's going to come out of it, mm. right? Um, you know, because, that wasn't there for me, I've got to say. Yeah. I'm not trying to be a dick about it. I, I didn't feel that. I well, didn't feel much tension. I did. And, and one of the benefits of seeing the film with an audience, I mean, not so much in this case, though, mm -hmm. you know, you, got, you really get a sense that the audience liked the fight scene, but more so in the, til in the Tilda Swinton sequence, mm. right? You could feel like, yeah, kind of the audience electric and laughing at all the jokes. And mm. yeah, there was a kind of like the real tension that the film is creating was very evident in the audience response mm. uh, to it. Um, one last thing I want to mention, just because my friend Devin posted it on Facebook, as a kind of a lesson <laughs> where he's saying, you know, what, what matters in judging the film is not just, you know, what, what was shot on the set. Yeah. Kind of, you know, uh, people tend to see that as sacred. And he was saying that, um, you know, all of the handheld camera in the film is done in post. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah. uh, you know, kind of a very deliberate choice. Yeah. Kind of, it allows the filmmaker to focus on other things, you know, kind of on the set. Yeah. But, um, you know, how, how well it works, right? Uh, I didn't and know I that. Yeah. It didn't occur to me. I mean, I noticed the, the handheld, or, or I suppose now um, faux handheld, um, because, you know, Fincher shoots on tripods mm. always, you know, and there's such a feeling of stability. The thing about his camera, this is what's so great about, about the, the, the way in which... The, the film gets gets you into the killer's head in this. His camera so often is um, voyeuristic, mm. and it's like a camera of God. Mm. You know, there's this thing about like that shot in um, in Panic Room where, where it flies through the house. You go through the walls. You go through the handle of the coffee uh, mm. the, uh, coffee pot. It's like the camera can go anywhere, right? And he will. He and yeah, he uses CGI and everything to mm. make it do that in this kind of smooth way. It's this eye of God thing here starts like that but actually it's 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 the stability and the and the boredom of the main character mm. that is kind of defining the way that camera's sitting there and not doing very much because as soon as the shot is botched we're into handheld yeah, yeah. and we're moving and the, the feeling is different right and the and the, the the kind of mentality is different um but it didn't occur to me for a moment that it wasn't real handheld mm, um it is it's interesting um, I'll, I'll, I'll send you because I'll, you can just shoot handheld. I mean, that is that's, I, like I can, that's the easiest thing in the world is to just pick a camera up and shoot. Well, let me tell you why. So here it is. Um, so um, we wanted to congeal the film stylistically with what was happening dramatically because the story is very much a discussion about precision, procedure, and process. Uh, Messermage explains our main focus before shooting was what we were going to do with the camera. So David is famous for stabilizing shots in post, but camera movement is an important element of storytelling in The Killer, and we wanted to art direct that as much as possible. So um, every shot was on a dolly, every movement was made with purpose, uh, and um, and then the handheld uh, was, was done in post. So, so he's just able to control that as much as he liked rather than capturing it on the day and dealing with what right. he gets. So, um, well, that seems like a very fincher thing to do, yeah. 
Uh, and then he also goes on to talk about different cameras and stabilization and mm. so on. So uh, anyway, a, a fascinating film on it for all so, kinds of reasons. Just last thing for me, talking about process, which you know the, the cinematographer just mentioned there, about like it's one of the things that the film is absolutely about, and it's one of the things where, as I said, I was starting to find it lull. Um, it reminded me of of the Hitman game, right? So you won't know this. No. There's a video game series where you play a hitman. It's been going for like 25 years, but it was kind of um, rebooted um, about seven years ago. And there have been three entries in the kind of reboot series. And they are brilliant. They are fantastic. So the idea is that you play a hitman who is a, you're like a genetically engineered hitman who's perfect and stuff. It's part of the whole history story of the game. Um, but you get plonked into a situation where you've got a target or targets. You maybe have another... Um, uh, objective or two, so it might be like retrieve something from a safe, that sort of thing. Um, but it will be like you're in um, a hotel, a large hotel with three or four floors, various rooms you can go into everywhere. You you change into disguises, so you can like knock out. Yeah, you know, the, the building will just be like full of people. Mm. You can um, attack people. You can kill everyone if you want. You don't get very very good score if you do that, but you can. Mm. Um, but you can, for instance, like knock out a janitor, hide his body dressing what he's dressing in and get access to areas you otherwise wouldn't. You can steal keys. You can do this and the other. So you get this incredible amount of freedom to work out how you're going to go about getting your way to the targets and killing them in an efficient way or a messy way if you want, all that kind of stuff. Mm. They're really, really, really good games. And when the killer was first being advertised, people on the Hitman subreddit were saying, like, wow, could this be the Hitman film we've always wanted? There was a Hitman film. wasn't very good. Mm. Um, had had Timothy Oliphant in it. Um, and it was like, yeah, action movie stuff. But here it's like, from, from the look of things, you go, wow, could this be? And although ultimately it's very different, and of course it's got nothing to do with the Hitman game, there are things about it, and that, that idea of process really made me think about it. Because... When he's, um, he, so you get this thing of he wants to get into the billionaire's apartment. He sneaks his way into the garage. He sees that the door is locked. He figures he's going to need this this uh, lock, uh, this key copying device. Yeah. He gets it. He goes to the gym. He tracks the guy there. Um, he gets into his locker. He copies the key. He goes back, he goes through, and eventually he gets access to, to the apartment. So it's all about process, and it's taking a very long time. And I was thinking, oh, this is quite dull. But I was thinking, in the game, this is how it would go. Yeah. Like, you see all this stuff, you follow the guy, you learn what his routine is, you do what you need to do, you steal the key, you do this, that, and the other. Like, I mean, actually, it made me think, it, it was so interesting, because it just, it made me think about the game, so how much I love that game, and 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 how effectively it evokes that that same feeling process. The only difference is, in the game, you get to do it yourself, and mm. I found that more exciting. So in here, it kind of, it, it although it has purpose and everything, it did lack um, something for me that I like. I was thinking, God, if only I could play this. If only I was mm. one doing it, you know? Well, see, I didn't have that problem at all. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so the last thing I want to mention is the credit sequence, because I think it's one of the most beautiful and stylish credit sequences, you know, I've seen like since Saul Bass did, you know, his famous ones in the fifties for Hitchcock, you know, uh, the the gliding kind of motion, the the colors, the the distortions that it makes, the fluidity of it, it's just so elegant and so stylish, um, and it's just a joy to see. Hmm. Reminded me rather of the. Um... Opening sequence to seven for me. Um, oh. also, I mean, partly partly seeing the kind of brevity, but it was just, there was like something kind of quick and staccato about it that made me think of it. And um, and I mean, I don't know, I did, you know, they're not all that related. Although it ha happens to be that the the two scripts have been um, written by the same. Yes, um, I can't remember his name. Uh, who's the writer? Um, Andrew Kevin Walker. He wrote seven. Like he's most famous for having written seven, right. and he's done lots of script doctoring and things. But mm. um, he's basically he's, uh, that is his biggest credit, I think, still. Mm. And and you know it's just pure coincidence. But it did remind me of of that opening, of um, giving you a sense of a character's history and personality and things through this, through what's sort of I suppose reasonably, not abstract, but it's well, yeah, quite abstract. In yeah. A way. Um, Anyway, so um, my view is that, you know, it's a great film and gets better with each viewing. It's a very interesting film. 
and you know more interesting than um i thought of it as in the moment in the moment i really respected the craft mm. and i was kind of wowed by certain things but there were things that i found quite disappointing and i, and I don't think i'll um ever come around to certain things particularly the the fucking monologuing of tilda swinton's character just shut up mm. and i don't think it's fincher's best but it's really interesting I, I i mean i think the thing is that the films that i like the most of his do feel more substantial um maybe it's maybe it's because just of the way it's plotted that well. this is like it's so lean that um i feel less kind of meat on its bones but that's you know one of those things it's definitely well lean it gives the impression of being lean <laughs> it's obviously like so precise and thought through and made up of so many elements all kind of working together you know that uh you know it has its own plushness but i also think it's a very complex film with a lot to say about the world we live in as the filmmakers see it and actually that kind of i don't know philosophizing critiquing kind of behind it is one of the reasons why i think this film is going to be more and more talked of more and more written about yeah and it's going to become one of those lodestar films that people kind of return to over the years hmm. i wish the fight was a bit more imaginative you know well i thought it was imaginative so yeah. we disagree on that as well but uh overall kind of well you should say it yeah mm. so on that note thank you very much for listening or eavesdropping at the movies and we are on Apple Podcasts, Audible, Google Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, and YouTube. On social media, we're on Facebook and Twitter, at Eavesdrop Movies, and Blue Sky, eavesdropping.bsky.social. And the website is eavesdroppingatthemovies.com. Thank you very much for listening. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. <laughs>